Well, welcome to Lesson 7 in our series on biblical manhood and womanhood. We're on, last week we uh, began talking about male and female roles in the church and a couple of key scripture passages there. We're going to continue that today with another couple of passages and... Many of these passages, as you probably know, uh, are easy to be confused about and misunderstand, and so it's helpful to take a a careful look at these and make sure we can apply them well. So, I'm on page 34, lesson 7. Does anybody need a copy of the notes? They're all covered? All right. Well, our next passage here is in 1 Corinthians 11, and I'll, be, I'll go ahead and read that from verses 3 through 16. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while, prophes- while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as a woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, then let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since it is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but the woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is a woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. And all these things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. For her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Pretty straightforward, right? Mm-hmm. Well, let's, let's dig into it here. So, again, here, the context is, is in the church. It's the assembled church. And we see that throughout 1 Corinthians 11. Um, but even in this passage, it refers to uh, the praying and, and prophesying uh, in the church context. Um, uh, also, it's, it's obvious that it's, it's about being in public, not in, in your own home or something like that, because of the nature of the activities here. Um, and verse 16 specifically says it's about the practices of the churches, right? 
and what is proper in church. Um, and so there are two main requirements that are given here. The first is that women, women must wear something on their head if they are praying or prophesying, uh, presumably speaking in some other public way, within the church assembly, like in a worship service. And the second is similar to that, only the opposite. Men must not wear something on their head if they pray or prophesy uh, in the church assembly. So that raises the question, why? Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what we want to spend most of our time on here, the reasons for it. Well, Paul actually provides some reasons, right? In verse 3, he talks about this hierarchy of, of relationship where you've got Christ and then um, the man and then um, women, the woman. And like we've seen elsewhere, certainly in, in the family, it's also true in the church, we saw last week, that there needs to, the the women need to be um, submitting to the male leadership in the church, who uh, the men serve as as um, those exercising authority within the church by God's design. Um, so. Because of the church, it's, it's, it's in the church context, it's not just that the, the woman needs to submit to her husband, because that's true not just in church, but everywhere, right? Uh, it, it's also submitting to uh, those who, the men who are in authority within the church, um, that, that that authority is recognized and there's submission and, and so on. Um, secondly, he says in verses 4 through 5 that there needs to be some symbol of that authority. And uh, that, that the symbol of coming under the headship of those in authority has to do with what's on her head. And so it's, it seems to be a direct... Uh, symbol of coming under the headship of male authority in the church that there would be something on her head when she's having an active role, a speaking role in some manner uh, in the church. Yeah, Josh. So I know like um, Jewish people, they always wear the yarmulke. So where did the Christians kind of split off from that and not require any kind of kind of Thing. When did that kind of happen? I don't know exactly when. Or maybe why. Um, except that, as you probably know, in Catholic tradition, that still persists. Yeah. Right? And even other kind of, um, you know, like for bishops and cardinals or whatever they have, when they're in formal occasions, they wear some kind of headgear. And so there hasn't really been as much of a diversion among Catholics, and I guess Eastern Orthodox is very similar in many ways. Um, but Protestants, I'm sure, um, um, go to a passage like this. 
say this seems to be what God is teaching us, we ought not to deviate from this. Uh, so I'm not really sure what practices were, let's say, within the Catholic Church up to the time of the Reformation, but I'm sure by the time of the Reformation, this was um, understood and, and beginning to be practiced. So perhaps then. Um, okay. Another interesting word here that can add to the confusion is his use of the word glory, in both in verses 7 and 15. 7, he says, For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of a man. And uh, we've already covered the fact that both God, it's clear from Genesis that God created both man and woman in his image, right? Uh, it's not just that the man is the image of God, but also the woman. But the issue here is the glory. What is he referring to here when he says glory? Well, that word is in the Greek, doxa, it's where we get words like doxology, right? Giving God the glory. Um, and it can mean a variety of things. Um, literally, it, it has the connotation of um, opinion or judgment. And in, in the New Testament, it's always in a good context. Um, and it's usually translated glory. And you sort of have to know from the context um, uh, what's the intent. And so let's look at that. Uh, it usually, or it sometimes is referred to as praise or approval. But um, when he says here that man is the glory of God and woman is the glory of man, uh, he makes reference to the fact in verse 8 that about the created order, right? That the man was created first and the woman was created as a helper for Adam, um, and so that suggests that um, uh, man was created for God's purposes, the woman was also created for God's purposes, but also for helping the man fulfill God's purposes. Um, and so the emphasis here, the, the parallel here, is that Adam um, is from God directly and for God, whereas Eve was created from the man and is given to the man. Um, and so that glory, that... that um, um, purpose, in many ways, uh, is, is grounded in the created order. So um, one of the implications of that is that a woman's participation in public worship must be um, through the men who are in authority, being subject to them and, and 
cooperating with their direction um, rather than independently, for sure. That there is a, a recognition that um, uh, God has given authority to those men who are uh, leading. So um, you can think of that word glory as, as, as conveying the, the idea that um, uh, the, the man, Adam, this is all symbolic here, we're going all the way back to the created order, Adam was from God and for God, and the woman was taken from man, created from man, and was given back to him as a helper. Um, so I hope that helps. But he uses the word glory in another time, here in, in verse 15, where he says, but if a woman has long hair, um, it's a glory to her. And again, um, that, that seems to carry the usual meaning of glory meaning splendor or um, um, kind of drawing attention to it. And it's parallel to the man being the glory of God and woman being the glory of man in the sense that a woman's hair is from her and for her. And he specifically says, given to her for a covering. Um, now that, that may still seem rather vague to us, but he gives another reason as well, and that is the natural order of things, the created order, um, where in 13 he says, judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. So, um, you know, we, we observe even today that men, as they age, tend to... Um, have thinning hair or maybe no hair. Um, it has to do with with the way our hormones work and God's created us that way. Some of us have less hair than others. Um, but that's not common for women, right? Women, it's rare to see a woman who's naturally bald. Now some have, you know, gone through chemo or whatever and but it's it's rare for a woman to be naturally bald or even in most cases thinning quite the way that, that men often do. And again, that's God's how he created men and women being different. And apparently it has to do with the different hormones at play and, and the different um, in their bodies, but um, so when he says that it's disgraceful for a woman to shave her head 
Um, and it's unnatural for her to not have hair that is thriving, then um, there's, there's even a, a signal to us in God's design, physical design, that there's a distinction between men and women here. And the application of it in the church is that um, that distinction, that there should be a distinction between men and women in their relationship with authority. They're coming under headship. And so if a man has a head covering in the, in the church context, in the assembled church, um, it sends the wrong signal about headship within the church. Whereas if a woman doesn't have some kind of head covering, again, it sends the wrong kind of signal about her coming under the headship of the male authorities whom God has established in the church. Um, the first thing to observe is that the things he's appealing to here are not cultural, right? He's referring to um, uh, male headship in the church. He's referring to the created order and also God's design of the differences between men and women in terms of hair. Um, and none of the things he makes reference to there are inherently cultural. There, there's some symbolism going on there, for sure, but it's not just a passing cultural thing. And so um, there have been many suggestions about how to apply this. Okay? Um, you may know some denominations that are very uh, consistent that the women have to have some kind of a bonnet or head covering, right? And this, or a hat of some kind, um, and this is where they would go to, to base their application of that. Um, and I've noted here that many complementarians like us who understand the the complementary nature of men and women in God's design um, offer various suggestions about how to apply this, or even if to apply it, as it turns out. Um, some people would suggest that it was a cultural thing that Paul was dealing with in Corinth, and that doesn't exactly apply to us today. And, Personally, I don't buy that. From everything I see in the text, he's appealing to things that are not cultural, like the created order, right? So that does raise the question then, how should we apply it? Um, well, uh, one suggestion, even in the book that I've relied on heavily here, suggests that uh, possibly a more current cultural application of this would be some other kind of symbol that would be recognized in our culture 
as uh, indicating that the woman recognizes her submission to the male authorities. And so they said even something like a wedding ring could do that. Well, I've got problems with that, personally. Uh, first of all, the emphasis here in the passage seems to be that the symbolism of coming under headship has to do with the head, the physical head. And a ring on a finger isn't going to necessarily convey coming under headship, whereas something on the head would. And that's his point. Um, And so you say, well, it's only symbolic. Well, yeah, it's only symbolic. But there are other things that are very central to uh, our our worship and obedience to scripture that are symbolic, like baptism, Lord's Supper, lots of symbolism in both of those. And if we mess around with the details, we're going to lose that connection in the symbolism, right? And so if, let's say, in um, baptism, if we say, well, it's okay to, to sprinkle we're missing the point of the symbolism, right? Of, of immersion, of dying to sin, and being raised. And it's symbolic of, of what's already happened in the life of the believer, who's testifying that, yes, I'm a believer in Christ. Uh, likewise, with the Lord's Supper, if, um, if the bread that we used were um, donuts, we might get more people taking it I don't know. Um, but it loses the symbolism why, why do we use unleavened bread for that right it's, it's because of the, the, the last supper that Christ had also but um, because leaven is a repeatedly in scripture a symbol of sin the pervasiveness of sin and um, Christ's broken body was sinless. And so there's a lot of symbolism there that we need to, to um, uh, not only fit in with, but fully contemplate as we participate. Right? Um, and so just coming up with any old symbol doesn't really accomplish what God has set out in Scripture. Yeah. Does this take place within the context of uh, worship, or is it talking about uh, individually marriage? It's the context is the assembled church. The assembled church. Yeah. Now, I, I, well, I've read some instances where it said that uh, back during that time you had prostitutes who would shave their heads, mm. and they were required to cover their heads to be in submission to the church itself. So, uh, well, it doesn't specifically say that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's referring back to, again, he's referring back to God's design, mm-hmm. the created order. He's not referring to it as a cultural thing. So I don't understand it to be a cultural thing. I think it's a more basic symbolism that he's going for here. 
one conclusion I've come up with is that we just don't want to do this. <laughs> Plain and simple. We don't do it because we don't want to. Um, because if we did, then some number of women would voluntarily cover their heads just to be in compliance with it, just in case, is my thinking. The other thing is also, well, of course, if a woman is not prophesying or, or, or praying, then it, it probably is not as, as applicable. We probably don't, don't do as much speaking out as they did back then. So you could go that route. But I think the main part is we don't want to do it. And even growing up and having occasionally attended a Baptist church, I think there must have been a point, at least in the, the culturally black Baptist church, where it was um, required the women have head covering on. But what the women did instead was they wore the fanciest hats they could, yep. which kind of got them out of this submission part. And But to submit just enough to say I have my head covering on, but it's more about the style and not the submission. Kind of so, missing the point. Right. So, you know, this, this, is, um, this is about our heart. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It does. It does say in the final words that uh, a woman is her hair is given to her for a cover. Yes. Well, um, I think I've covered several other points I've made here on page thirty-six. Um, I didn't specifically mention point C there that uh, the word translated "woman" can also mean "wife." We've seen that elsewhere. I think even last week. Um, but in this context, it seems not to be talking about wife. It's speaking generally to women in their participation in, in uh, corporate worship. Um, so if it were wives, anyway, um, does that mean that unmarried women aren't subject to the same... Um, Expectations here? No, nah, it doesn't seem like the verses are saying that. So it, it seems to be talking about women generally, but particularly those who are involved, it says, in, in speaking in the context of the assembled church, not just generally attending. So anyway, on number three here, it seems that this command is best obeyed when all women in the church, at least those who speak publicly, wear a covering on their head. But the question is, what kind of covering? And that's where Io was, was asking before. We had to get there. <laughs> well, consider the following things. It, the text says covered. It doesn't say how to cover. It doesn't say it has to wear a hat or a bonnet or some word like that. It just says covering, right? Secondly, verse 15, as you pointed out, indicates that uh, long hair is given to the woman as a covering and that it brings a kind of glory and, and um, uh, recognition of God's design and all of that when uh, her, her hair is longer. And so the Greek word there actually is is used elsewhere in the New Testament as a garment. It's it's a covering. It's it's like clothing. Um, and so that suggests pretty clearly 
that a woman's long hair would satisfy even what this text is saying about having a covering because it's given to her as a covering, right? And then the uh, point C at the very bottom of the page, 36, a woman's long hair is linked to the idea of a head covering earlier already, and the two concepts are discussed interchangeably throughout the passage, you know, the the length of the hair and the the need for a covering. Um, Some have suggested that arranging the hair more on the top of the head on these occasions would be a satisfactory alternative to some kind of separate garment. But again, verse 15 emphasizes that the length of the woman's hair contributes to the glory that it bestows on her, and wrapping it on the top of the head seems to be counterproductive. Right? Yeah. Um, Catholics and, and others often have... A, a tradition like that, and I'm sure it's based on the, these passages, although um, many of them wouldn't know where to go in Scripture to, to justify their tradition, um, uh, or whether it's consistent with what Scripture actually says. Um, technically, that is a covering on her head. Why they do it? Well, we've always done that. Women are supposed to do that, but they have no idea of the symbolism or the purpose and, and that kind of thing. On top of page 37, it, it is appropriate for men to remove their hats before praying, and even culturally, it's, it's appropriate for men to remove their hats as they enter a building, but certainly before praying or, or um, otherwise speaking in the assembled church. And likewise, it's inappropriate for men to wear some kind of a spiritual head covering like a yarmulke or um, a, a bishop's, what do they call those things? Yeah. Crown or whatever. <laughs> um, that's, that seems to be in direct conflict with what Paul's saying here. Mm-hmm. Good question. In the case of a woman here, Uh, in what he's saying, is that if she doesn't have long hair, she needs to cover her head some other way so that she she has that that symbolism of of coming under the authority of those who are um, leading the church and and so on. If a man um, has short hair or he's bald... Or, well, if he has long hair, it's already inconsistent with what this is saying. Um, But if he's got shorter hair or no hair, um, but then covers over his head, he says very specifically, um, every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. So it doesn't matter if it's, if it's long hair that's covering his head or something else that's covering his head, um, the symbolism is wrong for men. But for women, the symbolism is to have something like that that would convey um, the appropriate submission unto headship. The man who puts a hat on when he's praying and otherwise speaking is, what he's saying is, is dishonoring his head. He's counteracting the symbolism that, that God had in mind. So it, it seems that the 
um, the critical area is praying and prophesying. Or I think we can say by extension, particularly since prophesying isn't something that's that's needed anymore because scripture is complete. But um, the closest counterpart to prophesying today would be preaching. Um, uh, declaring and proclaiming God's truth. Right? It's not new revelation. It's expounding on the existing revelation. So, so the thought I have is that how, how the, the church service uh, was conducted in, in these times is different from how we do it now. Um, and that and, and, and Paul spoke to the women in, in, in Corinth um, because they were speaking up too much, apparently. Um, and I guess from his perspective, disrupting the, the flow of, of the service. Um, and folks were doing some prophesying. I don't know what prophesying meant back then. I, I always had the feeling that, that, that prophesying was not how we see it today. Um, obviously, there were a lot of folks who had this ability to prophesy, and there was much more talking going on in the church. And this seems to apply to that, because then you would have women who would speak at certain times, and they weren't covered. Or men who would speak at certain times, and they were covered. Right. And, and so I'm, I'm just trying to think this through and, and, and how we do church today. And, and I, I've, there's this one denomination called the Brethren Church, and they they tended, at least several years ago, to have that type of service where folks could pop, could pop up and they'd have a word to say. It wasn't just the, the preacher at, at, the, at the front. So for us, we only have men who preach. And so we don't have women come to the pulpit to preach. So it's less of an issue in that regard. Um, and we don't have women pray uh, pray for, for the congregation publicly at our church. So I'm just kind of dicing it out. So it's, it's less of an issue because of that. Mm-hmm. I, I will mention, I didn't discuss it earlier, but the role of prophecy in, in the early church. Um, the, the key thing about the early church was that, you know, we take for granted that we bring our Bibles with us, mm-hmm. right? They didn't have... The only Bible they would have had would have been the Old Testament, and they didn't even have each a copy of that. And, of course, the preaching and everything was more about um, the, the, the gospel and, and the apostolic teaching, the teachings of Christ. And uh, eventually, the New Testament was, was uh, being written, and copies were made, and, and different churches were receiving it. That took a long time. And... So for a long time in the early church, they didn't have the scriptures, the New Testament scriptures that we just take for granted, and yet God didn't leave them alone. So um, he would give these, these um, certain people the gift of prophecy where God would speak to that congregation something that they needed to understand about their application of the truth they've been hearing, uh, whatever it is. It wasn't prophecy in the sense that it was also scripture, 
But it was God directing the congregation because they didn't have the word. And it could help in... Um, you know, you can think of it in terms of um, biblical commentary, right? Uh, you know, today you can just you can read any number of different commentaries on a particular passage in Scripture. So if if someone was teaching the apostolic teaching about the gospel and about Christian living, um, a, God could have very easily and very naturally. Uh, sent a word of prophecy to those who, to somebody who had the gift of prophecy, to add um, uh, application or emphasis about the the truth of what was being preached and this kind of thing, uh, to help them uh, get more grounded in the full application of the truth, right? Um, they didn't have their words to kind of cross-reference, right? Uh, the Bible wasn't, uh, the New Testament wasn't yet complete. Um, and, and so that gift of prophecy was God's way, of, a transitional way to help those fledgling churches stay grounded in the truth. And those prophets could have been men or women, according to this passage. And when they spoke... And we're, we're going to actually go to the next passage, and maybe it's a good segue to that. Um, it speaks of prophecy and how it should be conducted in, in the, the local church. Um, and, well, let, let's get there and, and then draw some more um, uh, conclusions and, and applications from there. So I'm on page 37. We're still in 1 Corinthians. Now we're going to chapter 14, uh, where the context here is some practical thing about the exercise of various spiritual gifts in the church. Right? He introduced it in chapter 12. Chapter 13 is speaking of the supremacy of love in that whole context applying spiritual gifts. And then he gets down to a lot of nuts and bolts in chapter 14. And verses 34 and 35 say, uh, the women are to keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak but are subject themselves just as the, uh, but to subject themselves just as the law also says. Uh, If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Well, how absolute is that? It's improper for a woman to speak in church. People can take that out of context and run to all sorts of conclusions. We just saw that three chapters earlier that some women were going to be prophesying and praying. That's speaking in the church. That's the whole point, right? So what is he talking about here? What is the context? Well, it is the assembled church. And he's in the process of saying that among the spiritual gifts, prophecy is the one that, that is more important for the edification of the church. He says, what's the outcome, brethren? When you assemble, each, has, each one has a psalm or a teaching, 
uh, has a revelation, has uh, something that's being said in, a, in another tongue, and an interpretation of what was just said in that other language. Well, his point is, let all things be done for edification. What is edification? You know, what's an edifice? It's a building, right? Edification is building up people in Christ. So he gives some rules for how to be orderly. And um, he speaks of that in three, I think, three major uh, contexts, three examples. The first is when someone has the gift of speaking in another language. Now, why would that have been? helpful for the local church. Well, if it's interpreted, it's kind of like prophecy in that this is a message from God that's clearly not from that person. He doesn't understand that language. Someone else has the ability to interpret it. Um, uh, And so that message can be very edifying And it becomes obvious to people this is something God's doing. It's not just people making up a story, right? So, um, but he says in verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be uh, by two or at most three people and each one in turn. And somebody has to interpret that. So if you don't have any interpretation, keep your mouth shut, right? And if there are more than one of you, then take turns. That's fine. He's saying be orderly so it, it can be edifying. That's, that's the context. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church. Let him speak to himself and to God. So there's regulation here on the number who spoke at any given time, uh, the need for interpretation. And it, it's very clear that those who would speak this way Uh, need to be self-controlled. That's the actual instruction. Agreeing to limit the number and uh, the order, the the sequencing, and and so on. Um, Okay, the other, the next example he gives is of people who prophesy in the local church. And he says, let two or three people speak. Similar requirement, right? And let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and be exhorted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And so... um, Prophecy here is important, as I was describing. So God is able, through these little micro-contexts, a given local church, to um, give them helpful instruction and amplification, perhaps, of the apostolic teaching and and so on. Um, But then he says, um, prophesying not only one by one, but also to have others pass judgment. Now, what is that passing judgment? Well, someone gets, gets, stands up and says, 
I have a word from the Lord. And he says, such and such. How do we respond to that? Well, if we just take it at face value, we'd say, oh, that's, that's impressive. But what if it's actually in conflict with what God had already revealed? Whether through the Old Testament law and the Old Testament generally, or even the apostolic teaching. And so we need to evaluate, if we were in that situation, we need to evaluate, is that really from God? And one way to know it's not from God is if it's in conflict with what's already been revealed. God's already given that as a test of prophecy in the Old Testament. And here in, in 1 John 4, 1, it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Right? So there needs to be some passing of judgment. When a prophecy is given, it says others, not that person, others in attendance should pass judgment on that. And the standard would be what's already known about God's revelation, right? Um, but as with those who speak in tongues, those who prophesy must be self-controlled, limiting uh, the number and the timing, the sequencing. And while a prophecy is given to one person, others should keep silent while the other one is speaking. So there's a controlling of um, who says what when and when it's appropriate to be silent. That's true both here of prophesying and, as we saw earlier, uh, of speaking in tongues. Keep silent if the conditions aren't right, basically. Um, so, then he moves in verse 33 continuing in verse 33. Um, speaking of women, as in all the churches of the saints, the women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says, and if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in the church. And so here again is the third example just in these bang, bang, bang in these verses where he's giving situations where people need to be silent. And there, there's a time and a place to speak. And in this case, there's a, a need for the women to keep silent. Now, does that mean that they're to keep silent as soon as they enter the doors of, of the church assembly and then they can't speak until they get home? That's not at all what it's saying. Like I said, we, we saw earlier from chapter 11 that women could be um, praying in church, they could be prophesying in church, presumably exercising any of these spiritual gifts. Um, so why, would, why is it saying here that they need to be silent if it's not a blanket requirement? Well, what's the context? The context is that passing of judgment of prophecy. Who is it, who would be the others who would pass judgment on prophecy? The male leadership, who are entrusted with the responsibility to guard the truth 
and to defend sound doctrine and to be discerning about false doctrine. And that's a responsibility given to the male leadership in the church, not to women. So if a woman scratches her head when there's a prophecy and there's, there's a judgment of it that says, that sounds like it's from God, yeah, let's go with it. I don't know what they would say, but, um, um, but it troubles her. I don't understand that. She gets home, she talks to her husband, and says, I don't understand that because do you remember in Deuteronomy such and such or in the Psalms or in the preaching of Peter, such and such was true. How does that square up with this? They can have a very interesting discussion around the dinner table, right? And that could very easily lead her to a better understanding of the scripture. Or the other way around, it could lead him to conclude, you're right. I don't think these guys who were judging that took these things into account. I'll take it back to the leadership of the church to reconsider that. That's all healthy, right? Um, But there's a time and a place for it. It's not her time and place to stand up in the church and say, I don't agree with that. Have you considered this or that? It's better for her because she's under the authority of her husband and, and perhaps both of them are under the authority of the church leaders to t- do it in a methodical way that would help the truth come out. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Uh, there's some application for today. Uh, we don't have to worry about judging prophecies so much, but there is something similar. We, we're always needing to uh, evaluate what's being said according to scripture, right? So it's preaching or teaching. What does, is, does that really square up with um, scripture? Uh, and, and that's not a whole lot different, really, from uh, evaluating and judging whether a prophecy that just came is actually from God or, or not. Um, so there, there's some similarities there. But when a man is teaching in the assembled church a particular biblical truth, women should not openly undermine that teaching by asking judgmental questions about it, but rather they can ask their husbands or even the, the teacher um, privately on the side to gain, so that both of them perhaps are one or both can um, come to a closer, a better understanding of the truth. Yeah. There, there are proper and, and, and helpful ways to do that. Um, so it's not a blanket. Um, you can just see from, from these passages that it's not a blanket uh, prohibition of women uh, speaking in any way in the church. It's just that everything has to be done in a proper way. Okay, any thoughts, questions at this point? This is a more practical question. Yeah. <clears throat> so, I mean, it's pretty clear, you know, men are supposed to have you know, long hair, women are supposed to have, not to have short hair. Um, but how does that practically 
you know, wear yourself out. I remember when I was younger, um, you know, I was trying to be like Alan Everson. You know, it's like, who am I throw out? And I had brains all the way down here and all that stuff, right? So, yeah, I thought I was trying to be one of the cool kids. But, uh, you know, like how long is long and how short is short? Because <laughs> <laughs> I know, like, I, like even with women, like, I know women have had long hair their whole life, and then when they get older, now they're elderly, you know, they tend to cut it shorter and things like that. So at what point, in a practical sense, you do those things in keeping with that? Like, is there like a hand breath, two hand Well, I think the the glaring observation here is that scripture doesn't answer that question. <laughs> and so it's somewhat presumptuous for us to say this is what satisfies it and this is what doesn't. Yeah. What is God really looking for? the heart. That's a good way to end. (laughs) Let's pray.